following sermon, The Unstoppable Gospel, is the 27th sermon in our journey through Acts, a series titled, The Church, Continuing What Jesus Began. For more sermon audio, please visit our website at www.mdchurch.us backslash sermons. Due to technical difficulties, the reading of Acts 12, 1 to 25 was not recorded. Please hear the word of the Lord. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him into prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and an angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all of that, all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now when Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. 
and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Cool. So, here we see at the start of the story that Herod, the government, has all the power. He kills James, he imprisons Peter, but as the story progresses, not only do we see a miracle as Peter walks out of a maximum, maximum security prison, but we see the gospel revealed, reveal its, its true ability to rise above and conquer anything. In this passage, we see and read about the power of the unstoppable gospel. Before we dig into this, I want to point out that the believers in the early church, those that were gathered at Mary's house, they weren't really that different from us today. They were regular people who had hardships and struggles. Yet, in this story, we see that they, in, in times of hardship and struggle, turn to prayer. And we see them fervently praying for Peter's release. When's the last time that you fervently prayed for anything? I want us to see this morning that as the gospel moved forward, it was through the fervent prayers of God's people. Even in hard times where it seemed like a hopeless case, the gospel pushed forward and God's people were there. Whether they were in prison or in hiding or gathered together praying for him to do a mighty work. Then they rejoiced. And honestly, that's something that, that we don't do very well today. They rejoiced in the mighty work and, took a, and, and told a bunch of people about what God had done, giving no credit to themselves. Right now, I want it just by shouting it out, what are some things that, that you need to rejoice about or we as a church need to celebrate and rejoice about? Whether it's in this community, whether it's in Joss, Nigeria, whether it's in your backyard, what are some things that we need to rejoice about? What else? That doesn't count, Jake. <laughs> yeah, being here without fear of prosecution, persecution. Definitely. What else? See, this is what I meant. We're really bad at this. There should be a thousand things coming my way right now. Relationships, good. Nice. Cool. So we, we need to rejoice. We as Missio Day Church need to rejoice, and especially on Sunday mornings. When we come to gather together to celebrate what Christ is doing in our lives as a community, this is the place that you should shamelessly shout it out, what you can rejoice in. Um, for me, I'm rejoicing because I've had the opportunity to put this together, and I'm standing here now. I have the opportunity for God to speak through me, and that has been my prayer leading up to this, that my words wouldn't hinder this message this morning, but that, that Jesus would be speaking to us this morning, and that's, I'm standing up here rejoicing in that, and I'm even like a little jittery about it, because... Um, 
well, I guess we'll get there, but it's just exciting. So these people that had gathered in this house weren't different from us except that they were not timid when talking about what God is doing in their lives. They didn't back down from it. We need to frame this morning's passage in that context. How do we allow the gospel to push ahead through us and not in spite of us? So in verses 1 to 5, um, we're going we're gonna to start there. And, and actually, we're going to probably spend a lot of time there, which is kind of funny because there's 20 more verses. But this is where we're going to sit. So um, verses 1 to 5, again, just to recap, this is Herod killing James, imprisoning Peter, um, kind of talking about Peter's situation in prison, um, and then the fact that he's kind of waiting there until Passover is done. So we open with the beheading of James, the brother of John, by Herod the king. <coughs> and now, to better understand Herod the king, I want to give you a little bit of, of family tree action for this guy. Uh, he was not good by any measure of goodness, and neither was his family. Herod's father was actually murdered by Herod's grandfather, Herod the Great. And if you'll remember, Herod the Great was the ruler in place during the, the birth of Jesus. He was the guy that sent out uh, the command that all these innocent babies should be killed because he heard that a king had been born that might threaten his rule. So he was willing to kill babies to keep his rule intact. So the Herod of Acts 12 didn't really have good role models in his father or grandfather. After his grandfather killed his father, he was sent to Rome for school, and there he became really close friends with the imperial ruling family of Rome which would suit him well later in life. In the meantime, though, he got into financial troubles because of the lifestyle that he had chosen. The guy was hugely in debt, and so he had to flee Rome. And um, in doing so, he went to Palestine so that he didn't have to pay off his debts. When he was there, he lived with his uncle, Herod Antipas. And this was the man who had John the Baptist beheaded at the whim of a woman. Um, and he was also the man who knew and tried Jesus. When Herod returned to Rome, he was thrown in jail for critical remarks that he had made toward the emperor. emperor, emperor. And uh, this, this was kind of his low point for Herod. Rotting in jail in Rome, didn't really know where his life was going, had debt. Um, but soon, uh, one of his childhood friends was put into power, someone that he met while he was in, going to school in Rome. And not only did he get Herod out of jail, he also gave him some regions in Palestine to rule over. Herod lived a life which was, in which he was first and foremost a politician. He was a chameleon, really. Having been educated in Rome, he was a Roman when with the Romans. But he had Jewish blood in him, so when he was with the Jews, he was a Jew, although that was really in practice only and not by any spiritual conviction on his part. Herod was desperate while well, he was ruling in Palestine to keep the peace with the Jewish people. So he would seek to please them by observing their laws whenever he could. But his passion, his true passion in life was for power and nothing else. He would do whatever it took to keep up his appearances with the Jews to remain popular. But as far as the Christians were involved, he didn't like them at all. <clears throat> he saw them as a threat to his power. He saw them as divisive. And he believed that their activities would be um, disturbing for the people. So we see here that he laid violent hands on some that belonged to the church. 
right here in chapter, in verse 1. This guy was willing to do whatever it took to pacify the Jewish population, even to kill. And that's exactly what he did. He beheaded James, the very same disciple who with his brother and mother asked Jesus for the two best seats in heaven. Um, and Jesus' response was that they would, drink, they would have to drink from the same cup and share in his baptism. Essentially, they would have to suffer what Jesus Christ suffered. John, later in life, gets exiled to the island of Patmos. And we see here James is beheaded. So what happens in this chapter is we start to see the playing out of the conversation Jesus has with these two in Matthew 20, 22. And it's playing out now after Jesus' death. And as to why James is killed, while Peter is simply imprisoned, all we can really chalk that up to is it's part of God's plan. Herod then captures and imprisons Peter during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He has the same plans for Peter's fate that befell James, but had to wait until after the feast was over. He saw how happy it made the Jewish people when he killed James, and he was kind of looking on keeping that capital rolling and building on that. He was thinking um, this would kind of solidify his in with the Jewish people, killing two main leaders of the Christian movement. For early Christians, this was a desperate moment. This wasn't just hard or challenging. This was desperate. The gospel was under direct attack, and it seemed as though the government held all the cards. They had all the power at this point. James was gone. Peter was as good as dead. And what would happen next? What would Herod do to their families if they continued meeting and praying? What would Herod do to them? There were all these questions and concerns. And the governmental persecution just increased. God's people seemed powerless in this struggle. During the week of Passover, where not long ago in that same week Jesus was killed, I'm sure the early Christians' thoughts darkened and they had to think that the situation was hopeless. With nothing that they could do, they had no power, they had no leverage, they really had no strength. What could they do? And in verse 5, we see that they turned to the only thing to do. They prayed. These people got news that a church leader was in trouble, and instead of cowering in a corner or hiding out or laying low so that they didn't get in trouble too, they gathered, which was, in and of itself was a huge defiance, and they prayed. And they didn't just pray. It wasn't just, we'll have snacks and come on over. They prayed earnestly. These people, even under high persecution, risked it all to pray. They gathered even though they knew that it could mean punishment upon them, their families. They prayed because it was all that they could do. It's all that they had. They had no clout in government to pull strings or to pay off the right guy to let Peter slip out. They had, no, they had not one ounce of power at any level in the government, but they had prayer. To those outside of the Christian community, this act of prayer must have seemed almost ridiculous. They should be planning a great escape, laying down plans to blow up a prison wall and get Peter out. Or they should just roll over and give in and admit failure. However, God has a bigger plan. 
In fact, God's plan was much bigger than Peter's imprisonment or even James's death. God was about to flex his muscles and to show his power. God's gospel would not be so easily stopped. In verses 6 to 11, we're moved into Peter's jail cell that very night before he is to be killed. Herod thought that he had a gem here. Herod thought that he had something that would just really get him in and solidify his power and guarantee that, that he would be just at the top of his game for a long, long time. So he guarded Peter to extreme measures. While most prisoners would get shackled to one guard by one arm, Peter was chained to two guards with two more standing at the, at the door. Then at shift rotations, four more guards would come in to take over for the standing guards. This is the equivalent of a maximum security prison here. You see, Herod remembered the not-too-distant past and wanted to be sure that there was no way Peter would walk out of this jail cell as he had done on two previous occasions. Peter, being chained, and on the eve of his death, is asleep between these two guards. And that totally threw me. He has no bed. I'm guessing he has a hard, nasty, dank floor and chains. And the guy's asleep. I don't think I'd be sleeping soundly in that moment, knowing on the next morning I was to be killed, beheaded, probably by a dull axe. I don't think I'd be sleeping soundly. <laughs> and put yourself in his chains. Peter was alone. This was on the heels of the death of a good friend. He didn't really have any clear witnessing opportunities in the prison, and yet he was resting. Where did he get this kind of confidence to rest in? One reason may have been the fact that many believers had gathered to pray for him. For a week, day and night, fervently, these people were praying for him. He also had the promise that Jesus made to him that he would grow old and die on a Roman cross. Now you see, Jesus' promise here had weight for Peter. It wasn't just words that Jesus mentioned in passing. This held weight, and it gave Peter confidence because he trusted in the promise of Jesus Christ. He knew that he would grow to old age. He had no idea how God would get him out of this prison cell under such heavy guard, but he knew God would do it. In that moment of resting, resting in Christ, an angel of God appeared and lit the entire cell. The angel had to strike Peter, Peter in the side wake him up. And now I, I kind of placed myself in this scene as the angel for a second. So you come into this dark cell. Peter's somehow asleep between these guards, maybe on his knees with his arms elevated, hanging, half dead already. You come in and boom, there's this huge light. And you're thinking, okay, this will get him. Okay, he's not waking up. So finally like, dude, poof, wake up. And finally, Peter wakes up. That's a testament to how sound asleep Peter was. This wasn't just like a passing nap. He had full confidence. Peter had no reason to doubt that he was going to die on that next day, that he wasn't going to die on that next day. He was resting so soundly, the angel had to strike him in the side. (coughs) 
So at the mere words of the angel, get up quickly, Peter's chains fell off. And then I love this next section. Peter was so tired that he doesn't even understand what's happening. He thinks this is a vision. He thinks he might be even dreaming. And I want you to think of a morning that you have been so asleep, deep in REM sleep, and something suddenly wakes you up. For me, this is my lovely son, Breck, who for some reason doesn't understand that you don't need to wake up before the sun's up. At around 5.15, 5.30, almost every morning, Sarah and I are awakened by the lovely alarm clock of, Mommy! Daddy! I'm hungry! Or, I have to go pee-pee on the potty because he knows that'll get us out of bed because we want to be done with diapers. So, on the mornings when I actually get up, which I have to be honest, isn't very often. On the mornings that I get up, I kind of stumble out of bed. I trip over at least a half dozen large stationary objects that haven't moved in the several years that we've lived in this house. I kind of stumble into Breck's room. He has a little airplane that hangs from the ceiling. I hit my head on that at least twice, because you got to hit it once, and then it swings away, and then it comes back and hits you again. I stub my toe on his bed, and I'm like, what do you you want. At that point, I'm not really sure if I'm asleep or awake, but I'm moving. This is Peter's whole escape. The angel wakes him, removes his chains from the two well-rested yet completely unaware guards standing at his right and left, and tells him step by step, Peter, get, get dressed. Dude, you're naked. Put, put some clothes on. Okay, now, after you, no, good, put your sandals on. Okay, you're doing well. Wrap yourself in your cloak. Okay, now come with me. Come on, buddy. You know, it's like Peter is just sleepwalking. But even in Peter's simple obedience to these very simple tasks, we see God's plan unfolding. At this point, Peter is fully trusting this angel, not even really knowing, not even really conscious of what's happening. And the great thing is, is in the midst of this miracle, where Peter is going to walk out of a maximum security prison completely undetected, Peter still has to get dressed. He still has to put on his sandals. He still has to put on his cloak. One of the commentaries that I read in preparation for this had a great take on this section. It said, God often joins miracles, I'm sorry, God often joins the miraculous with the ordinary just to encourage us to keep in balance. Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes, but then afterwards he commanded his disciples to go out and collect the leftovers, like he couldn't have snapped and had them in the baskets in front of him. He raised, he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and then told her parents, give her something to eat. Even in miracles, God is always practical. God alone can do the extraordinary but his people must do the ordinary. I think that's just such a great plan, take on our part in God's plan. We must remain humble and understand that good things that happen in our lives are not of us. Rather, they are of God, and they are a part of his plan. We have to remember, too, that God's ultimate plan is to ensure that the glory is given where it's deserved, and that is only to God. So after Peter escapes this jail by sleepwalking past the guards and through the automatically opened iron gates, he and the angel walk down the street, and then the next second, poof, 
the angel's gone, and Peter's standing in the middle of the street, half in a day still. It's only at this time that Peter snaps awake, and the first thing he does is give the glory and thanks to God. Peter recognized that he did nothing, zero, to deserve, to earn, or to manage his escape, but it was all through God's working. God's people who boldly defied the seemingly powerful government under Herod's direction by praying together had overcome Herod's plan. Peter was guarded by many of Herod's guards, and these were probably some of Herod's best guards. Remember, he had a prize here. But it only took one of God's agents to walk him right past all of these seemingly high-paid, trained sentries and guards. And my, my question for us today is, do we trust in this? Do we trust that we walk around protected by God's agents, by angels? I think that one of the main stumbling blocks for today, for us, for Americans, for the American church, if I can go that far, is that we're still reliant on ourselves. We still look at a church building and say, look what we've done. Or if it's a huge church building, look at what we have all done. We don't often enough give the glory where it is due, where it is credited. We may say it, oh, thank you, God, for this building, but somewhere deep inside, at least for me, I still had this inkling of, I've done something good here. So, Peter did, didn't for one second, though, think that it was he that was good enough to escape that cell. He didn't look at this escape and think, wow, I am one stealthy dude. I walked right past all these guards and look what I've done. Not for one second, that thought didn't even cross his mind. As soon as he snapped awake, he recognized that God had, had orchestrated this. And I love what he says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. I often give myself credit where credit is not due. I accept praise for my gifts when I use them, and it, it makes me feel good, and I enjoy that. In fact, it, it kind of puffs me up, and it makes me feel good about myself. However, when I do that, when I take that credit, that, that good feeling, that increased confidence, whatever you want to call it, is short-lived, and it fades quickly. But when I give credit to God for the gifts that I have and for the opportunity and my ability to use those gifts in every situation, that's what produces lasting joy in my life. Because in that moment, I'm seeing clearly where my source of strength comes from. And it's nothing inside of me. We must be bold in our praising of God. When good things happen, we can't timidly accept the praise. We need to turn it around and say, thanks be to God for this opportunity. Thanks be to God that we have people that are talented musically that can lead us in worship. It's nothing of ourselves. In verses 12 to 17, Peter has awoken, the angel has left him, and he goes to the first place he could think of. He goes to Mary's house, probably because this house had a reputation of being a house of prayer. 
when he knocks, his voice is instantly recognized by this girl, Rhoda, who instead of continuing maybe the five steps to open the gate, turns around and runs back into the house. And this was probably a large house. I'm guessing Mary's family was somewhat wealthy, wealthy, and this was probably a bit of an estate even. So she goes back inside, and she tells the others that Peter is here. And I can imagine the minutes that pass for Peter, who is thinking, you know, God just sprung me out of jail, and now here I am completely exposed on the street, knocking at this door of a known Christian house. I'm, I'm going right back to jail. Why didn't they just open the gate? But we see here that Rhoda is so thrilled that she has no choice but to run back and tell everyone and to celebrate that Peter had returned to them. And at the news of these same people that had been praying day and night for Peter's release, their response is, there's no way that Peter is out there. You're seeing his angel. You're hearing his angel. In fact, Peter's probably already dead. They've written him off. Which is kind of funny to me that these same people that were fervently praying were so quick to write off the news of their answered prayers. What's not funny to me, though, our still slowness to accept that God will answer our prayers. Even today, we pray for healing, we pray for conversations to happen, we pray for deliverance from sin. And when these things happen, we say, oh, that medicine kicked in and I'm feeling so much better now. Or, wow, that was some good timing. I'm so glad that that person happened to be here at that point, that we could have this conversation, I could share this. Or, you know, I, am, I have such good willpower, I've stopped sinning in that area of my life. We as a church need to get on our knees and we need to pray expectantly that God will work. He wants us to pray like we mean it. He wants us to pray too in a manner that lines our wills up with his will. So why don't we? Why don't we pray that God would break into this church, into this community, into our own schedules on a daily basis? These people praying for Peter's release didn't trust the words of this girl bringing the news that their prayers had been answered until they saw Peter. And how often, even in our experience of seeing answered prayer, do we still doubt that God has worked in that, in that specific arena, in that specific context? I love, though, once they get to the gate and they open it and they see that it's Peter, their response is to rejoice. And I'm guessing they were pretty loud because Peter has to motion with his hand for them to be silent. Again, he may be thinking, dude, any sort of ruckus is going to land me right back in that cell. Shh. So they had an appropriate response, to be joy-filled. Peter then <coughs> recaps the entire account of how God, through his strength, had gotten him out of the cell and then directs them to tell these things to James and to the other brothers. And then Peter disappears for a while. And to this day, no one really knows where. He just goes into hiding. And so we go to the other side. We head back to the jail cell where Herod, in verses 18 to 19, seeing that his best effort to exercise his strength was no match for God's power, he's furious at this point. He talks to the guards. 
who were on, on duty when Peter escaped, then has them killed. In his frustration, he leaves and heads to Caesarea, and there he met with some people who had been having a dispute with them. And, and these people relied on Herod for food. So they wanted to make peace. They wanted to come before Herod, apologize, grovel, whatever they had to do. But you, it was, you couldn't just come before Herod. You needed to get an audience. So they went to this guy named Blasius. They probably bribed him, gave him the right amount of money, wealth, praise, whatever it took to get him on their side so that they can get an audience with Herod. And it worked. Herod saw this as an opportunity to display his authority and glory as king and for the people to flatter him and please him in that time. He's frustrated. He's coming off a bad thing. He just needs an ego boost. Herod gets dressed up in his brightest robe, his nicest clothes. He sits down and he, he pens or maybe has someone write for him this speech that's going to make him seem awesome, and it works. He does. He impresses the people. His clothes, his words, everything was impressive. And they played to his ego. They did exactly what he wanted them to do. They praised him. They called him a god, not a man. And Herod, in that moment, got his reward. He got his praise right there. And sure enough, it was short-lived. Herod didn't give the glory to God where it belonged. And in that moment, God struck him dead. His glory was short-lived and sense has faded to nothing. And the account of his death is in, he was eaten by worms and then breathed his last. Which... He didn't die a pleasant death. The guy probably suffered. In fact, most people think that it took him about five days to die. So there was nothing pleasant about his end. But even in the end, in the face of persecution, the gospel prevailed. The story started with Herod, the government, seemingly having all this power and authority. He kills James. He imprisons Peter. He seems to be squashing this whole Christian, Christ follower movement that's happening. He's making the Jews happy and liking him more and more. But in the end, it's God who gets the glory. Through the faithful prayers of his people, even in seemingly impossible situations, and the trust of his servants, we see God's strength. Peter, half asleep, trusts that God is at work in that moment when he walks out of that jail. At Missio Dei, I pray that, that we are like the people praying for Peter, even in the face of retaliation for our prayers, and that we are like Peter in our faith that God will deliver us from any situation that we find ourselves in, and that he and he alone should be the one to get the glory for his workings and his doings. Even today, where it seems like we have it easy, we have the ability to come to church without worrying about looking both ways before you walk in the door. We have the ability to meet together without the fear of policemen breaking through our doors and arresting us all. We need to be sure that we don't get comfortable and that we don't get lazy because it can get really easy to get lazy. We have to be in the word and praying that our will better lines up with his will daily so that when hard times come, and chances are they will, we're ready. We can be fully reliant on God, as Peter was in that cell, 
that even in the face of death, we can rest, we can sleep, we can be at peace. And that we can trust that his power is not limited or small. Rather, his power is big enough to conquer anything of this world. And ultimately, we need to be in the word daily. We need to be praying together regularly so that the good news of Jesus Christ can move forward in our community, in our workplace, in this country, in our state, in any context that God chooses to put us in, that our primary goal is that the gospel moves forward right there. We need to live lives that are reflections of Christ and his power. And we need to remember daily the sacrifice that Christ made to us so that in everything we do, God gets the glory. Uh, at Missio Day, we celebrate communion every week, which I love. Because it's a weekly reminder of the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Remembering that even Jesus Christ, on the night before his execution, sat down and broke bread and gathered with his disciples. As he took the bread, he broke it, reminding his disciples that this is my body that will be broken for you. Whenever you eat of this, remember me. And in a similar way, he took the cup and he filled it, pouring it out, saying, this represents my blood, which is a new covenant for you. Whenever you drink of it, remember me. We are called daily to live in the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Take a few minutes, prepare your heart, and when you're ready, you may come for all things have been prepared. Would those serving please come forward?